Hello, Renaissance. My name is Chris Travis. I am a participant with Renaissance, and it's a real honor to be with you here today and to get to share this message with you. Um, let's pray before we get started. Father, please let some word that is heard be yours. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Okay. I want you to imagine just for a moment that you're running late for some very important meeting. Now, this is obviously a pre-COVID situation, but let's say that you're running late for a job interview or um, some important presentation or like a court appearance or maybe a third date when you were late for the second date and she was very upset about that, but whatever, just something where you really need to be there on time. And you know how it goes. When you're running late, lots of times it goes from bad to worse. Your MetroCard for some reason just doesn't work. And then the, you find out the train is skipping that stop and then you can't hail a taxi. And by the time you finally huff the 10 blocks to the next stop, you miss that train. And by the time you get on the train, then the announcer gets on and says, it's going express and it's skipping the stop that you're trying to get to. And you're, you're in your seat and you're looking across the open doors, across the platform, and there's a local train there. And you think, if, if I got up right now, I could book it across the platform and maybe slip into that train before the doors close. And you decide, I'm going to do it. And you get up and you do it. And you're shouldering your way through the crowd. And right before you get through the door, an old lady swings her rolling cart over in the way and pushes in the way of the door and moves real slow. Like stretching the space-time continuum slow. Now, she's an old lady, but to you at that moment, She's an obstacle. Okay, now imagine the exact same scenario. Imagine objective reality hasn't changed one little bit, but the only thing that's different is you left the house an hour early. You left the house with so much time that all of this can go wrong and then some. You can ride the train express past your stop, get out, get a cup of coffee, take your sweet time enjoying the streets of New York City, getting to where you need to go, and still have 10 minutes left over. So you're in a whole different mindset. And you see that old lady on the train and you think, wow, look at that lady. What a fascinating person. She's like 70 years old. They should do a people of New York about that lady. Imagine the stuff that she's seen in the 70 years she's been here. Same old lady. But my question is, which is she? Is she an obstacle or a fascinating person? Situations like this illustrate just how valuable and important the scientific method is. Because at its heart, science is a process to ascertain what's there objectively, at least in terms of physical reality, and not our perception of it. Disclaimer, I am going to touch on some science stuff uh, during this message, but I am not much of a scientist. I teach fifth grade math, and I read a lot. And I listen to a lot of weird podcasts, but I wouldn't even really consider myself an amateur scientist. I'm more of an enthusiast. Like, I don't know whatever the scientific equivalent is to guys at tailgate at football games, but that's kind of what I am. Like, I'm like, 
whoa, they fixed another problem. Yeah, science. So that's how I feel about science. So I, all that to say, please forgive me if there are any actual neurologists or psychologists or anyone who has studied consciousness listening to my every man's attempt to explain it. I promise you, by the end of the message, when I get into more of a religious method of thinking about the world, I'll be on much firmer ground because that's a little bit more in my wheelhouse and hopefully I can you know, bring all this together. But one of the things that I've become fascinated with recently is the, the nature of consciousness and what aspects of our lives and even of our bodies that can be directed consciously. Now, I don't really have a technical definition of consciousness to offer. Uh, by consciousness, I simply mean the things that we're aware of, that we're focused on, that per we're perhaps intentionally uh, directing versus unconscious, which is somewhere beneath our awareness. I think consciousness is actually kind of a spectrum. Like on the one end, you have like super present, super focused, hyper vigilant, wide awake, the way you would be in a, in a threatening situation, for example. And maybe the way other end of the spectrum is like a deep dreamless sleep where you're like, quote unquote, dead to the world. And most of the time we live somewhere between those extremes. But we all have these biological routines and processes that are unconscious. You know, we don't really have to think about my heart beating or my digestion or my cells dividing. These things just go on without me thinking about them. But then there's this, this really fascinating group of processes that can be conscious or can be unconscious. Like, for example, your breathing. If you ignore it or you're focused on something else, so long as nothing obstructs your breathing, then you'll just go on breathing naturally. But if you want to, you can actually take control of the process. You can slow down your breathing. You could hold your breath. You could breathe through your nose or your mouth. And it's such a fascinating thing that many religious systems have incorporated breath work, I think because it provides this really perfect metaphor for bringing the unconscious life into consciousness. Your, your eyesight is like this. You can certainly choose where to look. You know, you can look away from the screen right now if you want to. You can look at my eyes or look at my chin or back again. But sometimes your eyes just sort of move on their own too. Like for example, if there is something unknown, like what's in this bag? You, you almost can't help but look at it, especially if it's unexpected. If I say, I brought a hammer today, but it's actually an orange. Or if it seems valuable, maybe because another human is looking at it, which suggests it's something worth looking at, you almost can't help look at that item. The crazy thing is that our thought is like this. Thinking is like this. You can consciously choose what to think. Right now, if you want to, you can close your eyes and you can visualize a tropical beach somewhere with the sights and the sounds and the smells. But if you don't do that, if you don't consciously choose what to think, it's not like you stop thinking. Thoughts still kind of rise up. We all have this, this running commentary of seemingly random things that come into our mind or we're trying out future scenarios to see how they play out or problem solving or replaying some conversation we had. And that unconscious thinking can actually be so powerful because there's maybe 
unresolved things that are screaming for attention or uh, there's something that you know, but you don't know that you know it because you don't want to look at it or you don't want to admit it. And it's it's screaming for attention uh, that these thoughts can almost sometimes arise unbidden. Sometimes they'll even like pester you and beat their way into your conscious thinking, even though you're really trying not to think about these things. Those kind of phenomenon are what gave rise to psychoanalysis and all of the many powerful therapies that have come in its wake. But all that brings me back to this huge question. What should we think about the old lady on the train? You know, if you just go with the flow, your experience of that old woman is going to vary greatly depending on your mood and your goals. And should, should we just go with that? Should we just let whatever our impression happens to be, be reality to us? Or should we decide instead to direct our thoughts? And if we choose to f- what to think about the old lady, then what should we choose to think about the old lady? And now we've come to the, the great strength and purpose of what I, I might call a more religious mindset or a more religious method of thinking. The scientific method is really extremely powerful and useless useful, especially when figuring out what is, you know, at least in terms of physical objective reality. Religious thinking deals more in the realm of what things mean and what things should be. Some people call this the is-ought divide. Like we can talk about what is and we can talk about what ought to be. I personally am not a big fan of uh, viewing it as a divide, because I think that the scientific method and the religious method of thinking are actually very complementary, and they just have different aims, and they represent different types of knowing. I just need to pause right here to acknowledge that I am a huge nerd. Whenever I even mention science and religion in the same breath, I think about this scene from Nacho Libre, the baptism scene. If you're not familiar with this, it's like, why haven't you been baptized? I believe in science. If you haven't seen that scene, you need to pause, go search it up, Nacho Libre baptism scene, then come back and thank me. But I am what I am. I love this stuff. And the reality is science yields truth. But I would argue that the religious thinking is in some ways, in some important ways, even more deeply true because while we're constantly upending and revising our scientific theories to incorporate new information and new findings, religious thinking deals with these massive story arcs that span generations and, and are true of the experience of life for all people in all places at all times, and so are, at least in that sense, eternally true. Concepts like justice, grace, and love. So then, what should we think about the old lady on the train? What does she mean? Well, I'd like to read a couple of things that um, a man named Paul wrote in Scripture. And he was one of the first followers of Jesus, although he did not know Jesus personally. In fact, he despised this new sect of Jews that believed in Jesus. But he had this dramatic religious experience, this vision that completely remolded him. And and from that point forward, he dedicated his life to sharing this uh, new way of thinking about God. And here's what he wrote to one of the first uh, churches in a city called Corinth. This is from 2 Corinthians 10.5. He wrote, we take every thought captive to make it 
obedient to Christ. We don't just let thoughts roll by. We take thought captive, he says, and make those thoughts obedient to Christ. So, for example, if you have a judgmental thought about somebody or a vengeful thought, like, I really hope they get theirs, or an unkind thought, Paul is saying you don't just let that thought go unchecked. You take hold of that thought and you make it obedient to Christ. How would Jesus think about that person? Or another example, imagine that you have a super anxious thought, maybe after scrolling your newsfeed for just a little too much. I know it's hard to imagine that that would happen, but for me, anything more than five minutes and I'm there mentally. Well, Paul's saying you don't just let those thoughts settle in. You don't let those thoughts feel at home in your own mind. You refute those thoughts. You meet those thoughts. You counter those thoughts with some big truth like the infinite, all-powerful, all-loving creator God is here with me right now. And here's another thing that Paul wrote about thinking. This was in another letter to a different church, a little church in Philippi. This is Philippians 4 verse 8. He wrote, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. He's saying intentionally think about admirable and noble things. Guide your thoughts to dwell on excellent things, things that are right and good and true. Now, this does not mean that we ignore the bad things in the world or that we like pretend like everything is okay. Uh, but it, it does change the way that we face the bad things in the world. And I, I'll comment a little bit more about that in a moment. But the, the stakes for how we choose to think are very high, according to Jesus. For example, he said, judge not lest you be judged. With the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And what he's saying is the way that you think comes back on you. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean like if you judge people, then someday in the future after you die, you will be judged. It, it might mean that too, but Jesus typically didn't talk that way. Jesus typically talked about the here and now. He said the kingdom of God is here right now. And I'll tell you from personal experience, if you are constantly judging other people and being critical of them, then you are living in condemnation and judgment of your own way of thinking. I felt this especially when I was in high school and when I was in my 20s, when I was always so insecure all the time and felt like everybody was critically judging my every little move. And it took me a long time to recognize that I was judging other people and I was living under the condemnation of my own mindset, that the measure that I used really was being measured back on me. And it took me a while to realize that actually nobody cares. Everybody's just worried about their own stuff. And the few people that actually do care, that actually are judging you critically like that, they're living in their own little slice of judgmental hell that I once spent a little too much time in. Now, Scripture is full of instruction about how to do this, how to change our thinking. And if you'll pay attention when you read, you'll find all, all kinds of useful stuff. I'll share one now. When Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them how to pray. He taught this model prayer that's it's now known all the world over as the Lord's Prayer. And in that prayer, 
he taught a very powerful phrase that we should pray, your will be done. So I want to suggest that when some thought comes into your mind and you feel that you ought to take it captive, that I'd like to recommend we morph that thought into a your will be done type prayer. So if you do happen to spend too much time scrolling and you start to get really anxious about the variety of really awful and scary things looming, then morph those feelings into a your will be done type prayer for protection, for our leaders, for different leaders, for medical breakthroughs, whatever. Spend some time imagining the God-preferred reality, imagining what God would like to see happen, and imagining yourself operating in it, how God would like you to think and feel and act about the situation that you're in. Or say you're tempted to judge somebody, which happens all the time. Pray that God's will would be done in their life and also in your own perspective. Spend some time faithfully imagining that person whole, blessed, forgiven, bursting with joy. And imagine yourself with, with nothing but goodwill toward everybody. And I think it is very safe to say that imaginings like those are excellent and praiseworthy. And instantly, you can see how this isn't in any way ignoring the bad things that are happening in the world. You know, when you pray your will be done, very often God wants us to be the answer to our own prayers. Very often he'll prompt you to act and think and be differently towards the situation you see. And, and visions of God's will in the world is the thing that could give us the fuel to face what's actually there and struggle for real change, for justice, for a better future. Because one of the things that happens when you learn that you can actually change your thinking is you become deeply convinced that change is possible. The way that we think can change the world. And I mean that objectively. I think that the way that we think can change the world objectively. Now, I'm not talking about like, like manifesting or some of the things that people talk about. There's some wacky stuff out there. There's some value in some of that stuff. Some of it is just wrong and predatory. Uh, I'm... I'm talking um, a little more fundamental than that. So for example, certainly if you have a traditional Christian faith and you think that God is all present and he listens to us and he's listening to our thoughts and like, you think prayer is a thing that God responds to, then obviously the way that we think matters. But you don't even have to go there. If you're not there in your faith yet, um, there are some ways that, that the way that we think clearly affects objective reality in obvious ways. So I'll, just one example, let's imagine that you are really suspicious of everyone. You view everyone as suspect. You feel like everyone is going to betray you at some point and you can't trust anyone. Well, that's obviously going to affect how you treat people and how you relate to people is obviously going to affect something in how the world works. I mean, maybe because you don't trust anyone, you never say I do, and we never get to meet those cute little kids that you were going to have, and, and maybe the world is poorer for not enjoying the, whatever contribution those kids might have made. I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying things can happen because of the way that you think. But And we live at a time in history where I don't know if it's ever been more important for us to each do our part in how we think about what we're facing. We have a responsibility to at least not make things worse with how we're thinking about things. And we have an opportunity and a privilege to truly make some things better. 
Who knows what difference we might make if we all chose to think properly about the old lady on the train. We've never yet tried it. It might change everything. But you know what? Even if it didn't, even if the way that we think didn't change objective reality, it certainly changes subjective reality. It certainly changes our own experience of living. And what is life if not our experience of living, our experience of reality? What is the abundant life Jesus talked about if not our experience of the abundant life? With, with everything going on in the world, my family is you know, been trying to stay healthy physically. We've been sleeping at night and drinking water and trying to eat right, exercising, all that stuff. And at some point, my mom, my, my mom, <laughs> my wife, the psychoanalyst would have something to say about that. At some point, my wife bought this big bag of oranges. And uh, I don't really like oranges. They're, they're not really my, my thing. But I want to stay loaded up on vitamin C and all that stuff. So I've been kind of making myself eat at least one uh, every once in a while. I can't, I'm not really good at peeling them. I hate that bitter pith. I don't like the seeds. It's sort of, this for me, is kind of a chore. We just started listening to the Little House on the Prairie books with, with our boys. And um, it reminded me of a scene that I read in one of those books when I was a kid. And I can't remember which one, but the girls came out Christmas morning and they each had received one orange in, in their stockings. And to them, it was like a miracle. They had never seen an orange before. They had certainly never eaten an orange before. This, this thing had been packed in crates and rode hundreds of miles on trains. And they, they savored every last little bite. And it was like a flavor explosion. I remember a similar scene um, when I read I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. When Maya, Maya Angelou was a little girl, she described getting a, one slice of pineapple. And it was the same kind of thing. She she parceled it out to herself throughout the course of the entire day because it was such an extraordinary treat to have. It was like a miracle. So that raises an important question, you know, because an orange, objectively, it's an orange. It is what it is. But our experience of the orange, is it a chore? Or is it a miracle? Well, that depends upon what you think. 